We're going to look in uh, Romans chapter 1 tonight. I'm actually going to preach a message over the first three verses from your Sunday school material that you looked at this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. Romans chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. Because I believe that in these three verses, uh, there is one statement that's made that has caused people to question a lot of things, but there's also two statements that are made that has helped people understand a a great many things. And we'll, we'll talk about the the question and the statements as we go through here tonight. Romans chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In these three verses, Paul presents a a very weighty point of theology, and it's simply this, uh, guilty sinners stand under God's wrath. All right, this is kind of a continuation of the thought I shared with you this morning, which was all people stand as guilty sinners before a holy God. Here in these three verses, Paul's point is this, it, guilty sinners stand under God's wrath. Guilty sinners stand under God's wrath. In, in fact, he, he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Just before uh, this verse 18 is when Paul shared those great words of inspiration for evangelism in the Christian life, that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everybody who believes. And it's what he quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that says the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And then here, he kind of turns the pages from this gospel being the power of God to salvation to this hammering home, the harsh reality of the bad news before the good news becomes as good as it is. And it's that as sinners, people are under God's wrath. The wrath is an interesting word. It's translated in the New Testament uh, throughout English translations in different ways. In fact, some English translations uh, will use the word wrath consistently when they're talking about God being wrathful. Um, Other translations will switch back and forth between the words wrath and anger to explain uh, God's uh, ill feelings towards something or someone even. Um, In fact, we like to think that God is this nice, loving, heavenly father up there in the sky. But the reality is he's a nice, loving, heavenly father who wants to protect his children. And that includes protecting them from evil and many times disciplining them when they walk away or go astray from him. So when it says that all are sinners in Romans chapter 3, and when we read here in Romans 1.18 that sinners are under God's wrath, we need to understand something, and people don't like to hear it, and preachers sometimes don't like to say it, but God has anger 
you are under his wrath because you and I are sinners. As people, when we do wrong, God is angry. He is upset. And you might think, why would God hate me? Why would God be mad at me? Listen to me. I've got kids now, and I think I, I like to think I understand this more than I used to. But even I had these questions growing up. How, how could God be mad at the people that he's made? How could God hate sinners? Uh, Psalm chapter 5 says it specifically that the Lord hates those who are ungodly and who, who do ungodly things. So we can't just go with the standard traditional Baptist preacher answer that God loves people. He just hates the bad things they do. Because the people who have done bad things are the objects that are still under God's wrath. So God is mad at people. I mean, it just is reality. God also loves people. And this is why I, li- I say I like to think I have a better grasp of this. There is, there's nobody uh, that I love on the face of the earth more than Stephanie and my kids at home. Um, sorry if that offends you, but you don't get to live with me all the time, right? I, I just have to love you on the Sunday nights that you guys show up and the Wednesday nights that you show up and Sunday mornings. No, I love you all the time, but I do. I love Stephanie and my kids more than any other human beings on the face of this earth because God has given me a special relationship with those people. They are my family. I made a covenant commitment to honor and love Stephanie for the rest of my life. When my children are born, they belong to me. It is my responsibility as a father to raise them in the nurture and admonition and the fear of the Lord. So I've got this special bond with them. And even though I love my kids, there is nobody who makes me more mad sometimes than my kids. I don't know if anybody else can experience, has had the same experience, but I have such high expectations for my children because I love them. And because I know Stephanie's doing a good job teaching them, I'm probably failing at some points, but we're not perfect people, either one of us. We want our children to do the right thing. We want our children to to bear the family name well. We want them to remember what we've taught them. We want them to put in practice uh, the the principles from Scripture that we're helping them learn to become uh, Mally Grace, a young woman, and the other three boys, young men who follow the Lord. But when they fail, or especially when they disrespect our authority or they disregard what we've said, man, I I love them. At the same time, whoo! You better believe that they come under the wrath of their dad. In fact, uh, Stephanie and I have said to each other before that God made Branch, the little blonde-headed curly one, so cute so that we didn't kill him. Because uh, he gets in all kinds of trouble. And we love him. No, Listen, we love that kid. We love all four of our children at home. But there are times that unlike anybody else, they just have this way of pushing every single button that we have, even buttons we didn't know we had. And it, it becomes this, this irritation. I mean, more so than a bird flying around the sanctuary and trying to preach. More so than people who make those offhanded comments to you on Sunday morning when you're coming in through the church door, right? Um, it, it, here's why. It's because I love those children more than I love anybody else. And I think because I love those children more than I love anybody else, it's for the same reason that those children come under my wrath more so than anybody else. If that thing poops on your head, I'm sorry. Um, and I think that this same, same thing applies to God's creation. I mean, you, you stop and think about this for a moment. One theologian talked about how 
uh, God must love human beings so much because Jesus Christ didn't come to die for frogs. So we're more important than frogs. At the same time, frogs are not the one who disrebelled and disregarded God's authority. Frogs were not the crowning work of God's creation. Human beings are. And as human beings, the crowning work of God's creation that God charged to rule over the earth, to have dominion over everything that he created, people are the ones who rebelled against him. He loves us more than the rest of creation. He made us in his image. He sent his son to die for us. But at the same time, there is nobody who has deserved God's wrath more than people because we are the ones who have rebelled against him who have marred this world that we were supposed to rule over and have dominion over because of the, through the sin that we've committed. So it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, and not just, uh, not just impersonable unrighteousness, not just intangible ungodliness, but there's a specific object that's committing this unrighteousness. There's a specific person that is living in ungodliness. It's human beings. The wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and righteousness in men, in their hearts, in their lives, in in humankind, because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In fact, uh, Paul says it's not just that we disregard God's truth and the purpose for which he created us. Rather, instead of doing what we want to do, we talk ourselves in to believing that we know what's best for us. And so instead of living as creatures who were made in God's image, we begin to think that we can make ourselves into the image of God. In fact, this is the temptation that Satan offered to Eve in the garden. Did God tell you that you shouldn't eat from the fruit of this tree? Did God not tell you that if you like this, you'll be like him? Do you remember what the serpent said to her there? In Genesis chapter 3. But here's the interesting thing. Eve was already like God. She was already made in his image. So what she was doing was exchanging the truth for a lie. Like Paul goes on to talk about in Romans chapter 1. And instead of believing that God was a good God and a great God. Who loved her and wanted to take care of her. And who had her best interest at heart. She went, well you know what? Maybe I should take the reins of my life. And even though God has put me in charge of reigning over this world and having dominion over every created thing, maybe I know better than he does. And so instead of just having dominion over this earth as one under his authority, I need to take this authority for myself and live my life like I want to. In example, eating this fruit that he told me not to eat. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden is is interesting god was mad at adam and eve and he still loved his his creation but man you better believe he was mad at him what have you done he, he kicks him out of the garden he told them that in the day they ate of this fruit they would surely die now he's got to punish them and i think this is probably also why god does get emotionally upset with people Did you know that in the New Testament, we're even told that we can grieve the Holy Spirit? Do you know that when we sin, it actually hurts God's heart? I mean, this this is something else that I'm not looking forward to as a parent in the future. Because I know that my kids are going to do some of the same goofy things that I did. 
And I know that my kids are going to do worse things than they've already done now as young children at some point or another. I pray that God guards them from evil. I pray they learn how to walk in the truth. But listen, I, I know that there's some things coming that we're going to have to face as parents of these children that we love. I have no doubt, have no doubt, that there are some things that children do that their parents see that hurt the hearts of their parents more than anything else. They grieve their parents. It may not even be something directly that they say or do or don't say or don't do towards their parents, but when their parents see this great potential in their child's life, and their child doesn't live up to that potential, but instead exchange the potential purpose for which God has created them for something else, oh man, you better believe the hearts of parents are wrenched, their guts just turn inside of them. And I think that the Lord wasn't just mad in the sense that he wanted to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden, he's also mad that he has to dole out this punishment that he promised them he was going to give. But he's a good God, he's a righteous God. He's not going to go back and change his mind and change his word at this point. He says, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. What would a good parent do to follow that up with his children? You did the crime, you do the time. In this case, the crime was eating the fruit. In this case, the time is eternal punishment and death, separation. And we might think, wow, this, this is pretty harsh. In fact, the question has come up from this passage and from other places in Scripture, well, Jake, what about those folks who have never heard about Jesus before? What happens to them? I mean, are they under God's wrath too? Because there's, there's no way they could have ever heard that there's a way to be saved from their sins, much less that they're sinners who need to be saved in the first place. Or, Jake, what, what about those who don't know the story of Adam and Eve and how sin entered into this world and how we're all descendants of sinful people with the sin nature in ourselves? What about those people? Do those people just get a free pass and they have to go to heaven when they die because God loves the people that he's made and it's, it's all going to be okay? Like he's, he's going to take care of them? I'll share with you something that I heard David Platt uh, shared with a group of pastors at the Southern Baptist Convention a few years back. He said this, because people were asking this question, he said, folks, let me reassure you, every innocent pagan goes to heaven for eternity. You know, some, some pastors are kind of going, what are you talking about? And then he shared this. He said, I want you to listen to what I said one more time. Every innocent pagan goes to heaven. He said, here's the problem. There is no such thing as an innocent pagan. You can grow up on the other side of the earth where there is a people group who has never had access to the Bible before, where they've never heard the name of Jesus, and those people, because they have sinned, are still under God's wrath, just like Jews who grew up having the Old Testament law, and just like even we here in America in this uh, part of the world that we call the Bible Belt, or what's, what's left of the Bible Belt, we, those people are guilty because they're sinners before a holy God. And as sinners before a holy God, they come under God's wrath. And you say, well, Jake, how is that fair? And I really think the Romans probably asked this question too. How is it fair that these people would still come under God's wrath? Paul gives the answer in verse 19. 
because that which is known about God is evident within them or among them because God made it evident to them. In, uh, in biblical scholarship, there, there's something called general revelation and something called special revelation. Right? General revelation is the idea that God can be seen, God, God it can be acknowledged that there is a God by looking at the creation around you. This is general revelation. There is a God, he made everything, right? Then there's also the sense of special revelation. It's, it's, it's divine communication, divine revelation imparted to humanity by means of his word and by means of God's son, Jesus Christ, right? So generally speaking, a person could go outside later tonight after the sun goes down and the stars come out in the sky and you can look up into the heavens and go, wow, how did all of those stars, so many thousands, millions, billions of light years away, get up there? There must be a God who made those things. It's general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. But there's also a sense of special revelation. That, that there's not just a God, but that the Bible teaches us who that God is. That he's a holy God. That he didn't just create everything but he also had a specific plan for creating everything. It teaches us what sin is. It teaches us what salvation is. It teaches us who the Savior is, God's Son, Jesus Christ. He is himself God's revelation to humanity, right? So even if people on the other side of the world who have never read a copy of the Bible, never heard the name of Jesus, go through all of their lives and come to this point on their deathbed, when they're a sinner who's going to be punished for eternity in hell, God's not going to go, you get a free pass. God is going to judge that person for their sin. They're going to be under God's wrath. Why? Because the fact that God exists is evident in his creation. The fact that he exists is evident in his creation. Now, this evidence... This general revelation is not enough light to save people, right? Even the demons believe that there's a God and they tremble, they shake with fear. But demons don't confess their sins and trust that Christ died for them on the cross and rose again. Special revelation has to come into play in order to bring about the message of salvation. And God makes this evident to people as well. In fact, when when Christians or non-Christians have an issue with, what, what about all these unsaved people who have never heard and never had the chance to hear? You're telling me that, that God hates them and that God wants to send them to hell for all of eternity? Listen, here's what I'm telling you. God loved those people enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins and save them. Maybe the bird needs to be saved. I don't know. Um, God loved those people enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins so that they could be saved. But here's reality for you and me. If we're saved and we have the knowledge of the truth, what are we doing as Christians to help ensure that those people get the opportunity to hear about Jesus? And if you don't know, by the way, this is a good little point to make. If you give through First Baptist Church, Walnut Ridge, 
12% of everything that you give goes uh, through something called cooperative program missions, right? And so some of that money is used to operate ministries here in the state of Arkansas. Uh, some things you might be very familiar with, like Williams Baptist University or Arkansas Baptist Children's Homes and Family Ministries. But there are some other things that you might not be aware of that, that go on with those mission dollars that are given through our church. Part of that money that's given goes to support North American missionaries serving through the North American Mission Board. They're planting churches in 30 major SEND cities, S-E-N-D. Why? Because that's where the majority of the population of the people in our country live. It's not that other people aren't important. The North American Mission Board just has an effective strategy to plant churches in the most populous cities of our country. Because if you stop and think about it, why would you not go with the message of salvation where the most people are who need to hear it? And so th this is their goal. This is their strategy. When you give uh, your mission dollars through the cooperative program, you're supporting mission work here in, in North America, in the United States. There's also a portion of our mission dollars that go to support missionaries serving through the IMB or the International Mission Board. In fact, you know some of them. Um, some of them have been here before in our church. Jim and Teresa Flora, uh, that, that Walter and Mary and Bryce and myself are, are going to go and spend some time with in Lesotho. Um, they, they serve with the IMB. Uh, Richard, Richard Cummins for years served with the IMB before he took the Voluntary Retirement Initiative. But they served there in Chiang Mai, Thailand for a long time. And by giving through the cooperative program, we're supporting the work that Richard was doing with the International Mission Board. All right, so here's, here's the other part of this. Just throwing money in an offering plate is not enough, right? So I grew up not in a Southern Baptist church, but in a Baptist Missionary Association church, a BMA church. Um, so here's just something that's a little different about these two, two types of churches. The Southern Baptist Convention, um, the, the churches come together and give their money in a cooperative way to support thousands of missionaries. It's awesome because there's so many missionaries that we can serve together instead of trying to do our own different things as all these kinds of different churches, right? Um, it, it would be tough for First Baptist Walnut Ridge to support a full-time missionary by ourselves along with everything else that, that we believe God wants us to do uh, in, in ministering to our community. But if churches can come together, they can support more of them. Well, the, the Baptist Missionary Association worked a little bit differently. Instead of churches coming together and giving all of their mission dollars to support missionaries serving through mission boards, th they would let missionaries come through and speak and so that churches could adopt those missionaries and be prayer partners and financial supporters. And once they had enough financial support, then they could travel to wherever God had called them, to the people that God had called them to, and they could do their, their mission work there on the field. Let me share with you the, the two awesome things uh, about, about that type of mission philosophy in Baptist missionary churches. Here's the first. Churches actually get to see their missionaries come through all the time. Why? Because the missionaries know they need financial support, but that the churches are the direct contact for those missionaries. It was neat to see and hear um, about uh, families serving in Mongolia when I was growing up going to Calvary Baptist Church in, uh, in Horn Lake, Mississippi, because any time that they were coming back for a little trip, they would make sure to stop at the churches that were supporting them. So listening to Brother Tony talk about how he was living in a yurt and sharing the gospel with cashmere goat herders, that was just cool. I mean, we would love to hear the stories about people being saved. Something else that, that was neat about it, um, 
Sorry, I thought I saw another bird fly back there. I'm hoping I didn't. Um, Something else that was neat about it was this. We didn't just get to hear the missionaries tell their stories, but we also had a direct connection with those missionaries that, that we could go and serve with. So they were always, it wasn't just that our church was looking for a mission trip and we were just trying to find a random missionary to go with. We already had a relationship built with this missionary, and so we, hey, you need a team to come and help you with this? Let's get a team together. Let's go. Let's do it. Let me share with you something real negative about this. We couldn't support near as many missionaries as the Southern Baptist Convention's cooperative program could, right? Um, and so when, when I came to First Baptist here in Walnut Ridge, and when I began to understand this difference in missions methods between the Baptist Missionary Association and the Southern Baptist Convention, I thought, dude, the Southern Baptist Convention's got it going on. I mean, the BMA doesn't even have 100 missionaries, much less thousands like the, like the IMB and the North American Mission Board do. It was just neat for me to see and, and, and think about. But here's something real negative that I noticed about being involved in cooperative program missions. It is very easy to become disinterested and disillusioned with missions. Because as people who are giving to support missionaries through this big mechanism and organization, we start to think, well, my job as a follower of Jesus Christ is to be here at First Baptist in Walnut Ridge and to, to take the gospel to my neighbor across the street or to share the good news of Jesus with the student in my classroom or with a friend or a family member. Like, that's my job. I'm called to make disciples here in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. And you are. But that's not all you're called to do. Jesus gave his great commission, which was go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. So here's the reality. If you know Jesus, if you follow Jesus, it's your responsibility. It's my responsibility to make sure that we've got a way that we can help facilitate the making of disciples all around the globe. All around the globe. And this is what I wish Christians would think about when they stop and, and, and ask themselves this question. Why would God allow so many of these pagan peoples who have never read God's word, who have never heard the name of Jesus, perish in hell for eternity? I wish instead of Christians thinking, how could God do that? I wish they'd start to say, how can I live my life the same way I'm living? How can I go through every day without thinking about people in Lesotho in these mountain villages that don't know who Jesus is. Can I just be okay with that and lay my pillow down on my head at night and go, eh, it'll be all right, somebody else will take care of them? Folks, if that's our attitude, nobody's going to go and share the good news of Jesus with them. And you might not be called to sell all of your possessions and to go live in Africa the rest of your life. But you might be called... You might be specifically gifted in a certain way to reach a people group that you never thought about before. Uh, Stephanie and I got something interesting from the International Mission Board booth at the Southern Baptist Convention in, uh, in Birmingham. Who was, was that last year, the year before? Last year, wasn't it? Last year. Uh, we, we got this little prayer calendar of all of the people groups that, that they're praying for and emphasizing in their mission work. And each day... It's got a people group listed. How many, the population, the estimated population of that people group. And it, it's just got a simple little prayer written out there. 
And I stick it next to my percolator, my coffee pot at the house. Because, by the way, if you didn't know this, 8 o'clock coffee, fresh ground in a percolator is the best thing in the morning. I'm telling you, it is. Until I found this prayer calendar, now it's become the best thing in the morning. Because you, you can look at that prayer calendar and you can join others in prayer. You, you, you can join missionaries as they're praying on the fields in, where, in which they're working for these people who don't know the Lord to be saved. You pray for church planning efforts. You, you pray for scriptures to be translated in their native tongue so that they can hear and read God's word for the first time. You can eat. So instead of thinking, how could God allow this to happen, maybe we need to turn the question back on ourselves and go, God's already provided the way for these people to be saved. It's through faith in Christ who died for their sins. The problem is they haven't heard about Christ. How can they hear? Oh, yeah. How, how, how can they hear if somebody doesn't preach to them? And how can they preach if they've never been sent? You know, listen. Some of you, yes, even some of you here in this room tonight, may just need to sell it all and go to Lesotho, Africa the rest of your life. Some of you may need to go to India the rest of your life. Some of you may need to go to Grand Junction, Colorado or somewhere else. You might think, Jake, that is absolutely ridiculous. Listen, if God sent his son Jesus to the earth, if Jesus left the throne of glory in heaven to come here and save people, don't you think, don't you think that it might be a little less crazy for you to leave where you are, where you've grown up, maybe even your entire life, to take that message to people who've never heard it before? And then here's, here's the two statements that Paul makes in verse 20. Just in case there's still some doubt as to why God would still allow these sinners who've never heard about him to be placed under his wrath. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. What are the invisible attributes? Paul names them. One, his eternal power. Two, his divine nature. Since the beginning of the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God has eternal power. That is, he is able, he is capable to do absolutely anything. I mean, look, if Jesus can cause the blind to see, don't you think he can open the eyes of people's hearts to see the truth? If Jesus can make the lame to walk again, don't you think he can help those who are dead in their trespasses and sins stand up and walk with him spiritually for the rest of their life? If Jesus himself can literally physically rise from the dead out of his tomb, don't you think that Jesus can bring the dead hearts of sinful people back to life? Through his resurrection power, he, he can. And even if you don't have that special revelation of God through his word, through the gospel message, his eternal power is still clearly seen. Now, listen, I, I've, I've watched the debates between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham, the young earth creationist. And even though Ken Ham might look sometimes like he doesn't have all the answers for Bill Nye's questions, there is still absolutely nothing that an evolutionary biologist or scientist says about creation that makes me that makes me even think it's possible for all of this to be here by a sheer accident or coincidence and you might think well jacob that's the case there's no way i can argue with you 
I'll just go ahead and admit, you can't. I mean, I go outside and I look up at the stars at night and I go, God, you put those there. I mean, to me, it sounds absolutely ridiculous to believe that there's this dot that was in a, suspended in existence without any of the laws of physics that we now currently know that exploded, a dot that was the size of a Times New Roman 12-point font period on your computer screen, that it exploded and created everything we now see and know in the universe. That makes no sense at all. It's wrong. It's a lie. The truth is God hung the stars in the sky. In fact, Paul says here that we don't even have to look up at the stars in the sky, but the truth about God is it is evident within us. Have you ever stopped to think about the complexity of the human body? Some of you may, may be more familiar with uh, medical science and, and biology and, and those type of things. But folks, there are so many, so many different things taking place within our biological system to keep us alive and when we're younger to, to keep our bodies growing that it is unrealistic to think that there was just this fish who decided to hop out of the water and then it grew legs and started to walk and then that fish-legged creature started growing some fur all over him and instead of walking on his four feet he decided to stand up one day and then over a period of thousands and millions of years transformed into an ape and then this ape-like creature turned into a Neanderthal and this Neanderthal became a human being. You, you can say whatever you want to and listen to whatever scientists you want to. The truth is science doesn't prove evolution. Scientists use science to say that evolution is true. It's not. If we look at ourselves in the mirror and we stop and we think the next time we go to the doctor and he's doing all this blood work and these tests on us to check our, and, and make sure that we're not sick or to check and make sure that everything's working properly. How in the world could you think that this just randomly happened over a period of thousands or millions or billions of years instead of thinking that God made you, that God made people? It's evident within us. We look at ourselves and we see that there is a creator. There is a God who, who made us. His eternal power. God's great. He's mighty. He's all-powerful. It's clearly seen in his creation. The stars in the sky, even in ourselves. It, in his divine nature. This is his second invisible attribute. It's not just that God is great and he can do anything. That's his eternal power. His divine nature, it's, it's that he is good. He has created an ordered world, an ordered system, an ordered universe. He knows what he's doing. And he does it on purpose. His divine nature. You know, some of you might even be aware of these two invisible attributes. And you might have grown up talking about them all the time without ever realizing it. Any of you pray the prayer when you were a younger kid before you ate supper at night? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know what you're saying when you say God is great? God has eternal power. You know what you're saying when you say God is good? God has divine nature. It's a beautiful little prayer. A beautiful little prayer. And we ought to remember that everywhere we look, 
we can see the fingerprint impressions of God upon this world, even in spite of the sins of humanity and the way that we've marred God's created universe. His eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. In fact, this this divine nature, this goodness of God, isn't just displayed in, in the special revelation of God sending his son Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sin. It's also seen in something theologians call common grace. Okay? And in this idea of common grace, it's that God is a life giver, not not a savior to eternal life of everybody, but that God is a life giver to all people that are alive on the face of this earth. Right? So just stop and think about some things that if they weren't in existence, there would be no life at all. Do you know that we need water to survive? And it, it seems like rain falls from the sky to, to grow our crops. It's common grace from the Lord. He gives us what we need. Did, did you know that people and animals need food? I mean, we feed ourselves breakfast and lunch and dinner most days, and we might even feed our pets at home. But have you ever stopped to think about God's goodness to these little insignificant creatures or these unknown creatures that we might not ever think of somewhere in existence, somewhere else throughout the world? God does. In fact, we're told in the New Testament that God will take care of us because he takes care of the birds in the air. He feeds them. Do you know that? God feeds the birds? That's got to be a pretty good creator to even care about these small little insignificant creatures that are flying around the sanctuary uh, room tonight. I didn't know this bird was going to be in here, but it's kind of cool, isn't it? I don't think he's going to find any food. Don't feed it. It will stay. You don't want it to stay. You want him to fly away. But God takes care of his creatures. God takes care of his people. It's, his, it's the common grace of God. We can see that displayed. These are the two statements that, Paul's make, that, that Paul made to combat the idea that God could not be wrathful against sinners. The truth is, he can, deservedly so. Because in everything that he's made and in everything that he does, we see his eternal power, we see his divine nature. We see that there's a great God and that there's a good God. And that these things, as they are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, provide no excuse to people who live in sin. That is, there is no excuse. In fact, I would like you to think about something with me for a moment. Do you know who the people are that like to say, I don't know if I could believe in a God that would condemn people for sinning against him if they've never had the opportunity to hear about the name of Jesus so that they could be saved from their sins? And and the people that go down that train of thought and they end up rejecting the truth of the Bible and rejecting that Jesus is the only way to salvation, do you know who those people are? They're not those lost pagan people on the other side of the planet who have never heard about sin and salvation and the Savior, Jesus Christ. They're people who have heard the message and they're using it as an excuse to not believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they're using it as an excuse to not behave the way that Jesus wants them to behave, the the way that God has intended them to behave. They are throwing an argument in God's face that they themselves don't fully understand And here's reality for us as we sit here and read through and study this tonight. If those folks on the other side of the earth who have never read a copy of God's word and never heard the name of Jesus are without an excuse, are we without an excuse in this room? 
promise to us. No way. It could never be. There may be things as you read through Scripture that you don't understand. There may be times that you have God-sized questions that you can't answer because you're not God and that I can't answer because I'm not God. But folks, those God-sized questions have God-sized answers. And even if we don't get those God-sized answers that we want here and now, we can still trust that God is a great God and that he's a good God. God is a great God and he can save people. I mean, I want you to know that. He can save people. And he's a good God. He, he wants to save people. And so that's why I'm going to close tonight. Because I believe this, this is what Paul does throughout the book of Romans. He points out people's sin. He calls them guilty. But then he reminds them that they can be saved from their sin. And he reminds them that God loves them. Do you know that there's a Father in heaven? And when you sin against him, you're under his wrath. But did you know that at the same time you and I are under his wrath? We also are the people that he longs to love the most. You know, when my kids get in trouble at home, the ones that I love more than any other human beings on this earth, even Stephanie makes me mad too sometimes, right? And so these people that I get so mad at, do you know what I want to do more than anything after I've had to spank one of my kids for something that they've done wrong? I want to love them. Man, I want to forgive them. And man, I want, I want them to learn to move past that and not commit the same sin again. Why? Because even though they've done something wrong, and even though I as their father have to discipline them, and even though they fall under my wrath and my displeasure when they disobey me, I love them. Because I made them. Do you know that God made you? Listen, you might do some really stupid stuff. You might be under God's wrath. You are under God's wrath when you sin. But did you know that God still loves you? And you know why? Because he made you. And you know this? God didn't just love you enough to create you in his image. He loved you enough send his only son to die for you even though you marred this beautiful image this beautiful purpose for which he'd made you in fact god could almost say we're we're twice here he made us and he bought us with his son's blood jesus christ do you know that you're under god's wrath when you sin when you know that you're under god's wrath for sinning that you can experience his love and his grace as a person that he made, as a person for whom he sent his son to die. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your word. We, we thank you for the truth that is contained in the pages of our Bibles. God, I pray that we'd know that we're sinners, and I pray that we'd know that sinners stand under your wrath but Lord, I pray that we'd also know that as sinners we can receive your love because you're a perfect creator, you're a heavenly father to all those who would call upon you in repentance and faith. God, I pray that you would continue to be with us as we walk with you throughout our time here on earth. As we have doubts, questions, concerns, or 
about the truth of Scripture, about theological points, may we bring those things to you so that you can give our hearts and our minds peace. God, we thank you for loving us enough to send your son Jesus to die for our sins. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said,